the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. It's Wine Women Radio, folks. I'm Marsha Maycumber. I'm here with Misty Robush Kane. Good afternoon. Good, good afternoon. day. Good morning. Whatever time you're. I know. Whatever you're time you're in. listening, which is good. And we've got Joel Peterson here. Hello, Joel. Hello. I'm happy to be here. It's great to be here. We're doing Wine Women Radio Al Fresco. Fantastic. Cool. Definitely Al Fresco. That does mean that doesn't mean we're not wearing know. any clothes, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are outdoors. Uh, enjoying the very bizarre out of season warm weather here in Sonoma, terrifying. California. Truly terrifying. And it's really great. And um for those listening, uh going Joel Peterson, uh, Godfather of Zinfandel. Amazing. Uh, founder, winemaker of Ravenswood Winery, the great Ravenswood. Matter of fact, we have some glasses from uh, Ravenswood Winery and some Ravenswood wines. But now, founder, chief winemaker, bottle washer, and everything for Once and Future, a very, very cool new brand that you've introduced in the last... I want to say three years. Is that, uh, that right? Or 2014 longer? was my first vintage. Oh, there you go. Oh. But I didn't release it until 2015. So you're close. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. There we go. So we just um, went through a whole bunch of really cool interviews with viticulturists and vineyard managers um, who oversee a lot of Zinfandel vineyards, among other varieties. Um, at Zinfandel Experience uh, this past month. That was very cool to hear what they had to say about Zinfandel and how it grows, how it might be changing and expressing itself in the glass. And you brought with you some pretty awesome stuff here. So, so our listeners know what we have in front of us in our glasses. We've got the 2018 Taldeshi Vineyard Once and Future Zinfandel. Correct. From uh, for folks who don't know, that's up in Dry Creek. Yep, it's Dry Creek Valley. Uh, it's a vineyard that uh, has been mostly owned by one family, the Teldesky family. In this case, it is the Frank Teldesky family, as opposed to the Mike Teldesky family. Two brothers owned, you know, mm-hmm. parallel parcels. Uh, and this particular block that I make the Once and Future from is the oldest block on the ranch, which was planted in 1904. There are lots of old vines in this, but the 1904 planting is the oldest. Yeah, I, I love that history with uh, California Zinfandel. It actually composes about 10% of California vineyards, so it's a pretty fantastic, and seeing those old head trained vines is pretty amazing. The history of Zinfandel in California is truly remarkable, actually. The grape act came, we now know, from Croatia. Uh, it came from um, uh, the Dalmatian coast. It was grown by Venetian nobility on the Dalmatian coast. So if you went to a mask ball in 1300 in Venice and you drank red wine, there's a high likelihood you'd be drinking Zinfandel. It was called Tribby Drag there. Uh, Tribby Drag, interestingly enough, means early ripening. And this grape has got this history of being early ripening. If you go to um, Italy, you find the grape uh, called Primitivo, a clonal variation of Zinfandel. Primitivo uh, supposedly is derived from that whole notion of early ripening as well, and it is one of the earlier ripening grapes here in California, which just makes it a, you know, a love fest for growers because frequently it gets in before the rains and these days the fires come. 
Um, oh man, yes, uh, yes. And true. it came uh, originally to um, New York, interestingly enough, in um, the 1820s, like 1825 to 1829. Brought in by a guy named George Gibbs, and uh, George Gibbs um, passed it on to his friend uh, Mr. Prince, who was a horticulturist. And wrote the first American amphilography, and as far as we know, he's the first one to call it anything like Zinfandel. I think it was Zephyrdil, <laughs> uh, and it it um, it made its way to California, of course, right around the gold rush. Um, it uh, the first sighting of it that we know of, although there's a there's a bit of argument about this, is uh, a guy named McCondry, uh, Frederick McCondry, who. Uh, ran ships back and forth between Boston and California, but was a horticulturist in both on the both the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, and by the way, there was a very big horticultural uh, industry and hobby group in uh, Boston and New York and places like that where they grew grapes under glass in hothouses. And one of the grapes that they grew was this Zinfandel that uh, mm-hmm. made its way with them to California. It was first planted uh, by Osborne, uh, in um, Napa Valley, where Trefethen is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Osborne, unfortunately, got himself shot by one of his employees. Bad relations with your employees is not a good thing. Not, not a good the way thing. to go. Um, <laughs> and, um, and Boggs, who lived over here in Sonoma and was related uh, to uh, Vallejo by marriage, um, brought cuttings over to Sonoma, but many of them were damaged. Uh, and I guess there were more varieties than just Zinfandel, but Zinfandel was what grew. Uh, and as fate would have it, the, the hand of God reached out and touched Zinfandel and said, you will be the grape. Uh, and Vallejo had a French winemaker whose name was Foire, and Foire was a, immediately taken with the grape. He must have said something like, mon dieu, claret, <laughs> this, is, this is European wine. Wow, this is fantastic. It's got acid. It doesn't taste like this strange vinifera we have called the Mission Grape. Um, and so it rapidly, very rapidly became the most planted grape in California, Heresty adopted it. Um, he, he, his son later claimed that he brought it in, but we're, we're pretty clear that that wasn't the case. Um, Though the other contender for first landing of Zinfandel uh, was a um, a uh, grape called Black Prince or uh, no Black Saint Peter. I'm sorry, Black Saint Peter, and Black Saint Peter was brought in by a guy named Delmas in um, uh, Santa Clara. He claims that he brought it in from France, but he also brought in a huge number of cuttings from the East Coast uh, right around the same time that the McCondry stuff came in. Uh, and in fact, Vallejo um, was had just planted um, this grape, Black St. Peter, in his vineyard, uh, and he took one look at it and said, yeah, this is Zinfandel. Yeah, so Black St. Peter has <laughs> since disappeared. Uh, and uh, Zinfandel, you know, uh, held the day. So Zinfandel's been around for a really, really long time. It is California's grape. It is the U.S.'s, considered the U.S.'s home grape, so to speak. Well, it is. I mean, you think about uh, think about how other regions get their grapes. So Burgundy, you know, somebody didn't just wake up one day and say, we're going to plant Pinot Noir or Chardonnay uh, or Bordeaux. They didn't wake up one day and say, well, we're going to plant Cabernet Sauvignon. It was an evolution. They, I mean, you know, for instance, the dominant grape in in Bordeaux at one time was something called Castet. That was mm-hmm. before Cabernet showed up. Well, they're not making a lot of Bordeaux of Castet, although interestingly enough, they just approved it again for planting in Bordeaux because of climate change. Um, 
They what? yeah, but the world's changing. But the grapes really adapt the environment and the people and the kinds of wines that they like. And Zinfandel adopted California. It loved the California climate because it loves the dryness. It's a thin-skinned grape with tight clusters, and it rots easily if it gets rain. So no rain in California. Uh, unfortunately, there's no rain right now. We should be having lots of yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but um, but it, it's ideal for California. It loves the warmth, and it ripens early. All those things make it really ideally suited for our climate and our place in the world. Cool. Yeah, really fascinating. It, it, it is. So let, let's kick off uh, the taste fest here. Uh, where do you want to start? You well, want to start let, older or you want to start newer? Let's start older. I tend to okay. like to start older just because the older wines tend to be slightly broader and softer. So if you start mm-hmm. out with the younger wines, which tend to be sharper and more acidic, it's harder to uh, sure uh, work your way down the line. So the first one that we've got here is, uh, going back to Ravenswood days, the 2008 Teldusky Zinfandel, same vineyard, yes. Yes. We're not, we're not confusing our, you know, our Teldusky family members here. <laughs> nope. Same Same vineyard, but we're going back 10 years from the one that we mentioned at the top of the show. Exactly. So, so this is uh, 2008. 2008 was a pretty nice v- vintage. Uh, it was relatively even as... As far as those things go, mm-hmm. uh, as far as it's been um, in recent history, uh, all the Teldesky wines are essentially field blends. Uh, so this wine has Petit Syrah and Carignan um, and some Alicante Boucher in it, which are pretty traditional. Um, as California moved forward with uh, Zinfandel, they found that in some locations— it didn't perform as well as they hoped it would, and they helped to ra- hoped to round it out by adding other grapes. So Petit Syrah adds tannin and color and pepper, and uh, Carignan adds acid and, you know, and brightness. And Alicante Boucher, it's all about color, black, black, black. <laughs> yeah. Now I have to say, just, you know, uh, you know a little uh, swirl and sniff and sip tastes fresh as a daisy. Not being, you know, a taster of daisies, but it's an expression. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you wouldn't know this was a 10-year-old wine at no. all. There are people that argue that um, the best time to drink Zinfandel is about when it's 10 to 15 years old. Uh, Zinfandel goes through a cyclical change. It's a very charming when it's young. It's got all that fruit and other things. And then it kind of goes into a dip where the fruit dies off and you get more of the intensity of the acid and the alcohol. Um, And then it begins to regain some bottle bouquet and rebuild its aromatics. And about 10 years out, you kind of go, oh, yeah, this is kind of nice. It's got the balance and it's soft and the nose is charming. And uh, the but the acidity and the um, and the alcohol come sort of back into balance. Yeah, I, I love how, how more and more wineries um, in this now are starting to adopt library programs mm-hmm. where they're holding on to a certain amount of older vintages so that they can re-release them to their customers. It's just such a nice thing because wine storage is always the tricky piece that we all struggle with. Yeah, it's a tricky piece for wineries too, of course. It's an expensive way to, um, <laughs> yes. uh, to, to handle right. your inventory. Right. Right. Uh, no business person would say sit on your inventory and don't sell it. 
um, if you've got the opportunity. So I I think it's definitely a challenge. We were very fortunate at Ravenswood. We kept the library starting with my first vintage in 1976. Uh, And was that released back to wine club members or how um, was that? No, it was actually kept about five cases of all the things I thought were interesting. And and a little bit of it was released back to wine club members, but we mostly used it as... Uh, charity giveaways, and for tasting examples, um, I ended up with about 1,800 cases of that library um, when I retired from Ravenswood. Yeah. Uh, so I've been able to like you know share the wealth, so to speak, which has been great fun. Uh, and I did do a release uh, to my mailing list, uh, which surprised me. I thought, oh, nobody's going to be interested in this. And it was gone in five hours. So it was like ridiculous. You yeah. have raving fans, Joel. So that's <laughs> not a, a huge surprise to yeah. hear that. And as, as Marsha pointed out as well, like from a business financial side, it's always such a hard struggle. And, you know, earlier in my career selling direct to consumer, you know, I wanted to sell as much as I could. I'm like, what do you mean? Why do we have to hold this back? <laughs> and now I just am just so thankful when, uh, when wineries hold back wine to re-release it. Cause yeah. some of those years are so special. Like if you think of a bird, year or a celebration it's nice to be able to have access yeah. to those wines it's also really interesting for winemakers to be able to go back and look at their handiwork over the years and say oh yeah i remember 98 it rained at the end of the year and boy did i fight that botrytis and like oh my god it was just ugly i wonder how the wines are um you know i you know i, I released those wines and i thought okay okay well it turns out that some of them are actually surprisingly good and others you kind of go yeah, I can taste the mold in that one. You know, yeah. Uh, so uh, it's interesting to go back because, you know, yours tend to repeat themselves and you know, not identically, of course, but uh, well, rotten grapes are rotten grapes in any rotten year. Uh, right. And uh, you'd have to deal with it. And then this specific year, this 2008 vintage, yeah. there was actually about a hun- uh, about uh, 10,000 additional tons that were produced that year. So it, you know, Mother Nature always plays their course over two, a decade later of 2018. <laughs> so Mother Nature, consumer preferences, like there's so much that we have to factor in. Um, yeah. So it's it's always interesting to see how how the, uh, the production varies year to year and yeah. the acreages that are planted. Yeah, yeah, it's inter- it's interesting to see what that difference is and and how it's varied. Matter of fact, there is uh, a lot of information that's fascinating to find out about Zinfandel out on the zinfandel.org website. Yes. Yeah. Um so listeners, if you're really into Zinfandel or you're wanting to learn, that's a great resource because really like 98 or 99.9% of your questions about Zinfandel can be answered out there on the website. Everything from uh, about how they're grown and uh, the features that Joel's been mentioning um, to flavor profiles. Um, and yeah. I believe the site has a ton of recipes for wine pairings that, um, that. members of ZAP, uh, Zinfandel Advocates and Producers, um, have contributed um, to the cause to promote yeah. this wonderful grape. So um, you yeah. can find a lot of info there. You mentioned something interesting about Zinfandel in the sense that I like to call it the chameleon grape, um, in part because it really takes the color of the region it's in. Uh, Amador wines are vastly different than Sonoma wines, which are very different than Napa wines, which are super different than Paso Robo wines. They each have their own kind of distinctive character. Mendocino has its own character as well. So you have climatic soil 
uh, inflection variations within these regions, and Zinfandel just takes those on and makes a wine which is really quite good in each of those regions, but really quite different in terms of its <laughs> overall tone and flavor. Yeah. Yeah, so what are you, what are you getting in this 2008 Ravenswood Teldesque Vineyard Zinfandel? I still can pick up a little bit of spice, which oh, is... Oh, man, I, t- which I definitely is can. fantastic, because like you said, you know, this is a 2008 vintage, and it's still so aromatic and... Um, such a, a delight it's, on the palate. It's, uh, I get a lot of floral on the nose, mm-hmm. but it's floral with a touch of herbaceousness um, on the nose. Uh, I get a lot of dark cherry yeah. in the mouth mm-hmm. um, right up front. It's got all of the backbone and structure it needs uh, from the acid and the tannins, but it doesn't overpower it. Mm. And the pepper just kind of dances on through. Mm. It's all very well integrated. And the uh, you know the interesting part to me is that the you can still taste the trace of the French oak that I use. Mm-hmm. There's that little bit of mm-hmm. vanilla. Yeah, that's exactly of, what yeah. I was that thinking. That sort of binds it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely yeah. there. That's yeah, so nice. And and you also get off from uh, the the, uh, the the French oak. You know, you get a little bit of a balancing caramel mm-hmm. going through but it's it certainly doesn't stand out on its own about it and color wise we're kind of at a strong brick red um you know but with but you've also got tinges right around the halo that are still quite magenta purpley around the edge too and it's very opaque so it's definitely it's not showing its age and i believe that it, as we sort of sit here and talk it will evolve. It will open up. It will, you know, become a sli- in in a different way, a different part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Most and the ability to still pick up the the fruit in this wine, I mean, is spectacular because it's still so so opulent and rich. Now, since we're focusing pretty much exclusively with the wines we have poured today on Teldesky Vineyard, we can talk a little bit more broadly about this. But um, are these all head trained at Teldesky? Yes, all the Teldesky vines are head trained. Uh, it produces, yeah, probably around three tons an acre. It's Dry Creek Benchland. It's a soil series called Manzanita. Manzanita is a very red, cobbly soil, meaning it has small stones in it. Um, it's really a very good soil for dry farm. These vines are all dry farmed uh, as well. Uh, so that keeps uh, the clusters uh, somewhat smaller and the berries somewhat smaller. So you get really good intensity uh, from the uh, uh, from the grapes, uh, and that translates into the wine. Uh, you also have you know the Teldesky family that have been farming this for multiple generations, and right now it's John Teldesky who farms it, uh, and you know he does things exactly the same way as his father you know did them, which is pretty remarkable. He says, yeah, "I learned my farming from my father. I'm going to do it the same way." Uh, so. These vines are laid out on a uh, eight by eight pattern, uh, so they're laid out on squares essentially. And so, when instead of spraying herbicide, he takes his tractor and his harrow down the row one way, and then he takes it down the row crossways. Right. So basically, all you have around the vine that has anything resembling weeds is a very small little square patch around the base of the vine. Uh, so it's kind of an old technique, and people don't do that often anymore because they're trying to plant more vines per row. Uh, but with head-trained Zinfandel, this is actually a 
a really good way you know to do it and since you mentioned it's all dry farmed uh the competition for water is fierce so i'm sure those vines are protecting their turf <laughs> so that they get every little patch of of water that they can uh reach out to uh in their little eight by eight space yeah thinking of, of echo consciousness those those vines should get a little extra award for all of their hard work and, and hanging in there mm -hmm. for more than a hundred years mm. as you mentioned yeah. Uh, the the oldest vines planted back in 1904. Right. Um, so that's a pretty hefty amount of time. You know, I understood also that one of the other characteristics that made Zinfandel popular here and made farmers back then want to plant it was once they learned that it did well as a head-trained vine, that farming was actually easier. It didn't require them to spend more money on special equipment um, or additional things like trellising mm -hmm. um, that is, you know, it's an expense to outlay for that. So when they were looking at front, that was something I ran. I don't remember if that was on the Ridge Vineyard site that I ran into mm -hmm. about their history from Montebello uh, or something else. But it, the fact that it took on its own and didn't require additional farming equipment was a plus <laughs> <laughs> well it was definitely a plus uh, but i think that uh, the other part of it was uh that that was kind of the standard way of planting vines in the old world in those days so it was something that uh, uh people understood you know the italians get a lot of credit for zinfandel and they probably deserve a lot of credit for zinfandel uh, but they were not the first ones that planted Zinfandel in California. The first planters of Zinfandel had names like Osborne and Boggs and Carriger and like the, all these Anglo-Saxons that had come out for uh, the gold rush. And the, the Italians showed up kind of in the next wave, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And by that time, we'd had a recession in, in uh, California and a wine recession. Uh, and... And they were able to get vineyards cheap, and they knew vineyards, and so the whole head pruning was something that they they understood, uh, as it were. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're running a quadrilateral trellis, which is like a four-armed trellis, uh, you have to make so many more pruning cuts than you do for a eight-armed, you know, two-bud-spurred uh, Zinfandel vine that, you know, it's like much easier. And and much less expensive, actually. It turns out. Yeah. Yes. Good. 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 All good points for them. Uh, so so let's let's move on to our next wine because I know we're going to keep revisiting these uh, over the show as it goes back. This is also a Ravenswood Teldesky Zin from Dry Creek, uh, but this is moving up four more years to twenty twelve. So it's twenty twelve, and twenty twelve was an okay vintage, but it had some hot spikes in it. You can taste those in this wine. Uh, it's a little coarser than the um, 2008, but the, there's still that kind of vibrant cherry fruit in it. Mm -hmm. More red cherry to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And, and that's typical of, you know, years with heat spikes because heat spikes are like cold spikes. Mm -hmm. it's all, they, they, they basically do the same thing. They shut the vine down. Wow, that's, and so yeah. the vine doesn't mature the fruit quite as much. Yeah, that's interesting when you say that because, you know, you'll taste wines and some wines are just a little bit more balanced and a little bit more um, even progression. And then, you know, saying that about the different heat spikes, you can actually sort of taste the little 
there's little nuances in there yeah. that, that pop up. Yeah, this one's this one's a little bit edgy. I mean, it's totally pleasurable. But mm-hmm. yeah, if yeah, I was fantastic. if I had to open a bottle of 2008 or 2012 at the moment, I'd probably open the 2008 uh, and wait for the 2012 because it'll smooth out a bit more than it is now. Ooh. So that was one uh, very, very distinctive difference between the two um, and fascinating coming from the exact same vineyard. Um, farming techniques would have been identical. Yep. The family seems to religiously <laughs> stay <laughs> One to might that. say so. Um, different uh, growing seasons. My recollection was 2012 was was kind of funky and then also around harvest things were kind of funky in terms of timing like i'm trying to remember if there was a i don't know a bunch of rain in october there was some rain in october but there were also heat spikes in july uh and august Uh, so it was it was like kind of what california throws you in most vintages these years uh and you know, it doesn't make surprises. It does. It doesn't make winemakers happy, and it certainly doesn't make wines happy. Yeah. Joel, what got you interested in Zinfandel in the first place? Uh, you know, you you started out in a completely different career, but as a fan of great wine, mm-hmm. tell tell us how Zinfandel lured you in. Well, you know, I um, I grew up in a family that drank a lot of European wines. You know, my uh, father started one of the first wine sampling clubs in California, and my mother, who was a nuclear chemist, was also uh, an amazing cook. She applied all her chemistry training to cooking, uh, and so I, you know, was I had the good luck to be around a lot of Bordeaux and you know a lot of Burgundy, and uh, I knew a lot of people who had big cellars and they loved to share wine, um, but. And, and in fact, when I s- contemplated making wine, I thought about the fact that, well, you probably want to make a Bordeaux blend. You know, that's something that people aren't doing in California. And when I got to 1976 and was actually going to do it, I realized that the reason that nobody did it was because those vineyards didn't exist. There were no Cabernet Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec vineyards planted in the same place. In fact, yes, there was Cabernet planted, but anything else, forget it. Yeah. It was it was a whole uh, evolution in how California was planted, and particularly the North Bay. Yep, absolutely. Wow. So I had the good fortune to uh, run into Joe Swan at a tasting, and uh, and he said um, he said, uh, "Can you teach me to taste wine like you taste it?" And I because I was being a show off, and I identified all twelve wines blind, and you know, good for you. <laughs> well, it was it was I was clearly showing off. Uh, and um, and Joe Swan was impressed, and he said, "You know, uh, I said, yeah, I can I can teach you to do that. Give me three years of being facetious and obnoxious." Uh, and he said, "Well, I've got three years." He says, "And I've got a place for you to stay if you want to." And he said, "I'm building a winery, and I need some help. Do you have any building skills?" And I said, "Wow, you know." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, I had hair down to my shoulders, and I was living in Berkeley, and uh, I was thinking a lot about the green of America and going back to the land, and and I thought, well, let's see what this looks like. And so I spent time with Joe Swan, and Joe Swan was best friends with Andre Chalichev, so I got to spend time with Andre Chalichev. And Joe Swan was, wanted to be, you know, like famous for Pinot Noir, uh, but he didn't have any Pinot Noir planted that he wanted to make Pinot Noir out of, so he was planting the Pinot Noir, but he wanted to make wine in the meantime. And in the meantime, it meant that he had Zinfandel, 
And one of the best Zinfandels I've ever tasted in my life was the one that he made in 1968. But he said, well, I'm going to make this Zinfandel, this junk grape, because everybody was putting it in, <laughs> you know, in jugs. You know, like it wasn't considered, it wasn't highly thought of. He said, well, it's, I can do this. It won't cost me anything. And I'm going to make it just like I'm going to make my Pinot Noir. And I'm going to do that just like they do it in Burgundy. I'm going to you know, put it in small open-top fermenters. I'm going to walk around it in those fermenters if I have to. I'm going to punch it down. I'm going to put it in French oak. And I'm going to treat it just like I treat my Burgundian-style Pinot Noir. And wow, the results were magic. The Zinfandel just sort of said, hey, you're treating me nicely? I'm going to show off. Yeah. And it did. And at that point, I said, whoa, this wine is really good. It's as good as anything I've ever tasted. Um, so I began investigating more and realizing that Zinfandel really had a history in California. We didn't know exactly what it was at that time. We did. I've, I've done a lot of work since then to ferret out the details. But, um, but it was clear uh, that... Uh, just like my experience with Bordeaux or Burgundy or any of the Italian wines, there was a regional grape for a regional place. And if I wanted to make the wine of California, I had to make the grape that was grown in the region, that had grown up with the region. And it really essentially became my Bordeaux. And actually, in one of the strange ironies of the world, pre-prohibition, when these wines were made, you know, these field blends were made, they were called Bordeaux. And or Burgundy. <laughs> well, just just like, you know, for decades we had um, Gallo and Palmasan, you know, Hardy Burgundies, you know, yep. the, yeah. the names they attributed to their um, Central Valley put-together wines. Yep. Well, actually, Hardy Burgundy was, uh, was interesting because it included North Coast and Central Valley and Lodi. Mm -hmm. So all, you know, Lodi now, we all we think of the grapes as being pretty good these days. Uh, they were just considered to be packing grapes back in those days. Yeah. And Gallo used the the North Coast vineyards that it had. It you know it crushed everything at Fry Brothers uh, mm -hmm. to uh, supplement uh, the less than uh, spine filled Central Valley and South Valley grapes that they used. But as a as a beverage wine, yeah, it was good. It wasn't an art wine, that's for sure. Well, that's that's where you stepped in, you yeah. know, uh, after Joe Swan, <laughs> yeah. and sorting out all of that, um, all of the history. I mean, that must have been just a huge task in itself, because I mean, you have to go back to historical records. It's almost like tracing family ancestry. You have to go back to public records and find out who registered with which, which cutting and at what point in time. So, yeah, well. That's I was very fortunate from that standpoint in that there was a man named Charles Sullivan, who was also very good friends with Joseph Swan, who I met at Joseph Swan's din at dinner one night. And Charles was a college professor and a historian. And just as a lark, he got interested in Zinfandel because he was annoyed um, by the fact that Heresty had taken all the credit for Zinfandel, and he had read some things that indicated that it probably wasn't true. So he was going to ferret out that story. And so Charles wrote a book, uh, called Zinfandel, um, that um, uh, really ferreted out all the history of Zinfandel and the mo motion of it, as far as we knew it then. And mm -hmm. and then I ran into another historian in New York uh, who I was talking to about uh, Gibbs and what we knew about Gibbs, and he went off on his own on this like whole you know search of the literature and you know, the, the Schoenberg collection in Austria, which we, we believe is where the first Zinfandel came from to America in 1824 or 25. Um, 
And yeah, you know, so it was it wasn't as hard as you might imagine, but yeah, that was it was very interesting to put it together. And then of course when the Croatians found out that it was their grape, they did all sorts of like uh work and so I was able to go to a, a huge conference in Croatia about Zinfandel slash Tribudrag, uh and which almost turned into an international incident when somebody from Moldova showed up and said, Well, Tribudrag's not the original grape. It's Kratosha, and it comes from our. We have more of it planted than you, so far, therefore oh. it must be must be from us. It, oh it's not, but but it was oh. it was like one of those kind of like okay, I'm kind of stepping back because these people have a history with guns. Back in <laughs> back in back in the days of like the Romans, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't don't tangle with them if they want to get angry yes. over something like that. Such a, such a fascinating history, but of course the key thing here is it tastes great. Yes. And it goes with so many different things. Let's talk a little bit about uh, favorite food pairings with Zinfandel. Uh, what, are some of the th- what are some of the things that you like to have with Zinfandel? Well, you know, it depends on which section of my life you're talking about. <laughs> uh, my mother actually created a recipe for me uh, when I was early in my history, and it was a, um, uh, it was a lamb dob. With orange, mm-hmm. uh, and so essentially, you know, a modified lamb stew, if you will, mm-hmm. and that was really delicious with Zinfandel. Um, you know, I am more of a vegetarian these days, and so I eat a lot of other things, you know, besides meat. And Zinfandel and meat are the classic. You know, Zinfandel and ribs, Zinfandel and barbecue are like the ones that everybody talks about. Um, yes, but, but you could do this with eggplant parmesan. Las- and yeah, lasagna. Yeah. Lasagna. Yeah. So anything yes. Italianate and red saucy, but you know what it's really good with? It's really good with dal and avocado. Uh, this is like uh, you know an Indian dish, which you yeah, wouldn't okay. expect it to, as long as you don't put too much fire in the dal. <laughs> uh, all those Asian spices and Zinfandel just you know light up the world. They're Marry very nice. together. They, they do really nice things together. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Those like are that great too. ideas. Well, I just like to think with Zinfandel, uh, whatever you pair it with, uh, it it's filled with strong flavors. So you don't want to put this with something that's light and delicate usually, um, you yeah. know, so a light, a like with like. Yeah. And there are plenty of cheeses that this goes great with. There are plenty of cheeses this goes yeah. well with. I mean, you know, there's, you know, we have a whole cheese revolution in California now, of course. And, and vegan cheese. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I don't go quite that far, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, uh, but we have you know all the all the you know, that uh, the the cream the uh, the the triple cream uh, triple creams. But mm-hmm. no, we have uh, all the cheeses from places like Point Reyes and mm-hmm. you know the, the okay. areas out there, which is actually where my family ended up landing in in 1852. Um, but, uh, and they were dairy farmers, so they knew a little bit about cheese. Um, yes, they would. But, um, uh, but, uh, the cheese world in France and is like obviously paired with wine all the time. And there are regional wines and regional cheeses that go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't quite worked out those absolute regions yet, but, uh, there's no doubt that, some of the kind of the, the earthy, slightly grassy characters of California cheese do mm-hmm. pretty well with Zinfandel. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot of those out from the Tamales, Tamales Point Reyes area all the way into Sonoma. Yeah. We have the Vela Cheese Shop here. So yep. yes, you can yep. find some fantastic so. aged cheeses. Lots, lots and lots of choices when it comes to cheeses. 
So now we've come up to more recent future, the once and future Teldesky Vineyard Zinfandel. This is 2018, so it's a whole decade younger than the first wine we tried. And it is the only wine of the three we're having that's not a library yep. wine. And it's available for purchase now. It right? is. Right? And in fact, this, this wine will be on my next release. Uh, this will be in my March release. Uh, to be on to get into the March release, you go to my website, onceandfuturewine.com, and sign up, and you will get a um, an offer that just says, you know, you can have as many as six bottles of this wine if you want them. You're not obligated to take them, but uh, if you want them, they're available. And but you got to sign. You got to sign up for the list to, to be part of. You have to, to sign up for the list. list, and they're not widely available uh, otherwise. Yeah, so. It's Fantastic. a new, brave new world in wine sales. So, so that reminds me of a little step to take back. Ravenswood started with, and you're going to correct me, I believe vintage number one was about 336 cases. Well, my partner and I always argue about this. I say 327, okay. he says 340. All right, so was, you're, you, you've averaged the ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, grew uh, to when we, we, when we include the... Um, national distribution of some of its wines it grew to half a million in cases in production at a certain is that about right this is after constellation purchased it no is that, nope all no. right uh, i was thinking it was that it, far it but maybe i'm wrong it was international and okay. when constellation purchases we had grown to 450,000 cases nobody knew we were 450,000 cases but we were these people thought of us as a small winery <laughs> And we never tried to dissuade no. them because we were like making wine like we like a small winery. I was still in two thousand and one. I was still making all the wines that we made that were not Vintners Blend. I and, loved how you could visit during that time frame. And, I came and, home from college and would visit and yeah. visited Ravenswood around that time frame, <laughs> and I loved it because yeah. at the winery you were able to try a lot of the small lot productions that were very artisan and still handcrafted, even though, you know, you could go into your supermarket wherever you were across the U.S. and still find their nationally distributed product. So that yeah. was really nice. So we still made all their upper-end products and open-top redwood fermenters. I mean, it was like a real handcrafted thing. So Constellation bought us in April of 2001, right around my birthday, which was kind of an interesting time to have that happen. <laughs> uh, and then they began to grow, and they grew everything uh but mostly uh vintners blend so by the time they were they, they'd reached their apex it was about 1.2 million cases and i think around that time joel i think you would still pop into the tasting room oh yeah because no. one of the times that i visited i i recall really yeah wow. yeah it must have been like around 1998 oh time frame like maybe my, 99 maybe yeah my office was right there i mean yeah, yeah i mean i was part of i mean up and up until about 2005 or six, you know, we after even after Constellation, we operated as a pretty tight winery network, and you know, so you know, I was I was in charge of everything, including the tasting room. So yeah, I stopped in and out of all that, and yeah. um, and you know, as Constellation took over, things began to get a little more corporate, but you know, we still managed to maintain what we would like to refer to as our pirate ship mentality uh, and uh, and kept ourselves independent and in making the wines we wanted to make as opposed to uh, the wines that were sort of created by focus group. 
Although right. tastings at that time, I think they were like five dollars. <laughs> back, $5 back in the day, person. yes, exactly. Yeah, well, not that not that long ago, actually. Yeah, well, it, ter- it turns out that yeah, originally it was free, mm-hmm. and it had, was free for the first uh, like like almost eight or nine years that we had uh, the Ravenswood Tasting Room on Garricky Road, um, and what finally ended with that was um, wedding parties, young women together in limousines and on buses would show up, they'd drink as much as they could, and then they'd leave for the next winery where they'd drink as much as they could. And it was just like they they didn't buy any wine. They weren't really interested in the wine. They were just interested in drinking and having a good time with each other, which is fair enough. But uh, it's a little hard on an institution when you become the free bar. Yeah, Yeah. not not exactly uh, the highlight, so to speak, of where you want to go. But now you've come back around full circle because obviously you couldn't make all, what did you say, 1.2 million? You couldn't make all of those yourself. So now you're back with Once in Future. (laughs) Yeah, I made every single one. Every single one yourself. No, um, (laughs) it is true uh, that uh, when you get to be that big, uh, you oversee winemaking. Uh, you tell people how to make wine. You actually don't make it yourself. And, you know, I would try to drink, dig out one fermenter every year just to remind myself. Uh, but, but that's a lot of tons that you're working with, and you're moving it through in a very effective way. And at Ravenswood, we built a whole new winery at the quarry, uh, which allowed us to be very efficient but also make wine in a, on a small scale and large scale simultaneously. So we had lots of things going for us. But now... When in 2014, I said, you know, what do you really want to do for the last 10 plus good working years of your life? I'm not as young as I used to be. Uh, and and the answer really was I didn't want to run a million case winery anymore. I wanted to do what I loved doing about the wine business, and that was making wine. And I said, okay, well, why don't you just go back and resurrect all your old redwood fermenters and uh and make wine like you just want, and just want made wine together, and uh, make it like you'd make a great Burgundy. And how, did, how did you go about resurrecting the redwood fermenters? Is there anyone who produces them and sells them now? Because I only see them in like wine. They're usually just display yeah, only for, for historic archive. To my knowledge, nobody makes them because uh, I went out and tried to um, evaluate what they might cost to make at the moment. I couldn't find anybody who who would do it. Uh, they were all my wine fermenters were made by Bellagio Tanks, which was up on Limerick Lane near Healdsburg, uh, and I think they were probably the last people who did that. And it's hard to find really beautiful Clearheart Redwood anymore. Um, and more than that, it's hard to find the Crossman who can put them together. But when I stopped using them at Ravenswood, I didn't throw them away. I didn't take them apart. I didn't burn them up. I kind of hid them away uh, <laughs> and with with the idea that well, maybe we'll want to use them again. Maybe we'll, we'll do a centennial wine or something. You know, who knows? Uh, and uh, so they were there when I started up again, and I could uh, pull them out. And, and because it's redwood, they had shrunk a bit, uh, but it doesn't rot, and they swell up very nicely. They're like sponges, so the, the boards swell up, and they seal the tanks, and uh, they're all ready to go again. And where would you recommend for um, listeners who maybe haven't been to wine country to go view some of those historic 
redwood tanks. I mean, I know Corbell comes to mind immediately, not for the tanks, but for the entire like building just being built out of yeah. I think redwood. Cor- I think Corbell's you know quite remarkable that way. Most of the old redwood tanks have been taken out. I we, I used to tell people that they could go to Martini and Prati mm-hmm. uh, because Martini and Prati had some of the most beautiful like ten and twenty thousand gallon storage redwood tanks. They were cinnamon in color. They kept them in, immaculate. They were stunning. Um, and Louis Martini had some as well, but I think Gallo's taken those all out since they took over Louis Martini. Um, there really aren't too many places where you can go see redwood fermenters anymore. You know, if you were to actually stumble into Morgan's Winery, uh, you would <laughs> go down the, you know, these beautiful lines of stainless steel fermenters because he makes wonderful wine in these smaller stainless steel fermenters. And then you run into my little section of the winery, which is because I make my wine there. And it looks like looks like a museum. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And that's, the old school approach. And that's at Once in Future. Yeah. So yes. that's fantastic. That's Once in Future at Bedrock. At Bedrock. Right. right. Yeah. And again, and for listeners who may have turned in, just go to the website, onceinfuture.com, mm-hmm. yeah. to learn more or to sign up for yeah. the list uh, so for allocation. I'm very fortunate in that I get to work with a lot of really amazing you know, vineyards. Uh, you, you talk to some of the people uh, that I work with, you know, people like Brene and you know, and Jake and others yes. uh, who are really wonderful vineyardists. But, you know, people like them did not exist when I started Ravenswood. You know, you, I had to go out and find my own vineyards. The most, the most of the vineyards were owned by older Italian families or older families generally, particularly the older vineyards. And um, my, I guess one of my favorite stories is a Teldesky story, which since we're drinking Teldesky yes, wine, I might as well tell a Teldesky story. Please do. Um, so in 1982, actually 81, I, uh, I head to Mike Teldesky, who has been selling grapes to Joe Swan, and I ask him whether he'd sell me grapes. And uh, my hair is down to my shoulders. My beard's longer than it is now. And... Uh, and he and Joe Swan had an ugly parting of the ways. And, and he effectively said, well, I couldn't get along with Joe Swan. I'm not going to be get, able to get along with you. And by the way, I don't like the way you look. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, is there anybody who likes the way I look that has grapes as good as yours? Because I know your grapes are great, you know, being Mr. Optimistic. Uh, he says, he, he stops for a minute and looks at me and he says, yeah, yeah, you should go see my brother. He lives right down the hill. I think you can see his house from there. It's right there. And he <laughs> says, so it's a Sunday afternoon, right? He says, and I'm sure he's probably have, just getting ready to sit down for Sunday lunch. You might go down and you catch him now. Yeah. And it turned out that these two brothers had an argument some 20 years earlier that, and they hadn't spoken to one another. The Mondavi family story yeah, kind of it, came to the, mind. It's the Italian family story. <laughs> and, um, and so, um. Uh, I go down to see Frank Teldesky, and uh, I bang on the door, and he answers the door, and you know, uh, he looks at me up and down, and he says, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm looking for grapes, Frank. I heard you had great Zinfandel, and uh, I make Zinfandel. And he said, uh, who sent you? And I said, your brother did, thinking that'd be a really good thing. And he says, yeah, he does that to piss me off. He says, you can get out of here. Oh, <laughs> so, so I turned to walk away, and he said, wait a minute, what's that in your hand? I said, well, it's a bottle of wine. It's a bottle of wine I made. I thought maybe you'd like to taste my Zinfandel if you're going to sell me grapes. And he paused for a minute. He looked over his shoulder at his wife, Katerina, in the kitchen. And he said, you know, we're about ready to sit down for lunch, and we need a bottle of wine. You can stay for lunch. <laughs> Good for <laughs> so, you. So we sit down under this tree, and his two sons show up from the vineyard. Uh, they're in their teens, you know, Dan and, Dan and John. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... 
And Katerina brings, begins bringing out the food. I mean, like she starts out with stuffed zucchini and follows it with, you know, pasta with homemade tomato sauce that she makes from the tomatoes that, that she grows from the seeds she oh, brought man. with her from Italy. She's oh full-blooded gosh. Italian. Uh, wow. And she, um, she then follows that up with a roast chicken from the backyard that was killed that morning, <laughs> followed, followed up by a pork roast from uh, a wild pig that Frank had killed rooting around the vineyard. Um, so let's just say the lunch went on for a while. And uh, we tasted my bottle of wine. We didn't taste it. We drank it. It was gone in about 38 microseconds. And we're drinking out of these big old tumblers, uh, like almost as big as the water glasses we have on the table here. And uh, and Frank said, well, we're out of wine. He says, got to have some more wine. He said, would you like to taste my wine? And I said, sure, let's taste your wine. So he goes off to the barn. And he comes back, and he's swinging a gallon jug. And I'm thinking... Oh, dear. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dago red, homemade wine. I'm going to die. It's going to be full of aldehydes. It's going to be full of VA, and I'm going to have to drink it to be nice. <laughs> and he pulls his jug, and he dump, dumps, fills my, you know, like, eight-inch tumbler, tumbler full right. of, of wine to the top. And I very carefully sniff it to find out what the quality of my death is going to be. And it's really good. <laughs> I mean, it's just blackberries and cherries and, like, lots of really cool stuff. And I said, Frank, how'd you make this wine? He said, well, I can't tell you. He says, it's an old Italian secret. He says, um, an old Italian secret, you know, they have to stay secret. So half a gallon later, old Italian secrets don't have to stay secret. So, <laughs> uh, so he said, yeah, it's a little embarrassing. He said, I'll bet I'll tell you. He said, you know, look up against the barn. You see those big gray garbage cans? Over there? Those are my fermenters. He said, I used to use wood. Too much trouble. You know, he says, I use the fermenters. Yeah, he says, I bring the grapes down when they're ripe. The other guy gets his grapes here too early. You know, I, I, and I put them through my little crushers. Crushers like a hand grinder. It's like a grape grinder. Um, <laughs> he says, sometimes they take stems out. Sometimes they don't. It just depends on how I'm feeling. So I put the lid on the garbage can, and I take a week's vacation. He says, I go hunting. I come back and I pick up the lid and I look in the garbage can if I can see skins and stems. He says, I punch it down and take another week of hunting. And uh, he said, in the best years, he says, I got three weeks of hunting. Uh, he says, um, he says then, you know, when I can't see skins and stems anymore, I dump it in my little basket press. I press it. I put it in my barrel. Uh, six months later, we put it in these jugs and we drink it. It's not complicated. And I'm thinking, this guy has great grapes if you can get away with it <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. and um, if you can if you can give get him to give them up to you exactly so um uh so we're sitting there for a while longer and katarina brings out her chaldi there are these little thin wafer like cookies that they just roll up and and also her um her biscotti Mm-hmm. And Frank said, well, you like my one. So I said, um, he said, you know, I'll bring out another one. So he brings out a 1955 Muscatelli made, basically fortified Muscat. Oh, wow. So we finished off that bottle, too. Yeah, you know, like I'm feeling no pain. <laughs> and when I say to Katerina, I said, Katerina, you know, these chaldi, I've had them before, but never this tender, nothing like this. They melt in your mouth. I said, what's the secret? And she said, well, she said, the secret is that I put some of my Frankie's grappa in it. It helps, them li- helps lighten them. <laughs> and I'm saying, Frank, you made grappa? And he said, oh, yeah, just a minute. So he goes into the house, and he comes back with a jug of grappa. And I'm going, oh, no. Um, oh, my gosh. We don't drink a lot of grappa. But I'm basically, uh, you know, we, um, we're pretty, you know, three sheets to the wind for sure. <laughs> yes. uh, but we're having a good time. And finally, I get up from the table about four and, or five, and I say to Frank, I said, thanks so much for the you know, great meal, and thank Katerina, and shake hands with the boys, and turn to walk away. And Frank says, what'd you come for? And I said, well, I came for grapes, Frank, but you're not selling. 
And he said, well, he said, I kind of like you. You seem like a nice young man. He said, how many grapes did you think you wanted? And I said, well, I'd like about four tons. And he said, four tons, is that all? He said, <laughs> the other guy, I'll never miss four tons. He says, yeah, I'll give you four tons. He said, but the deal's this. You can't come here and look at the grapes and tell me how to grow grapes. He said, I know guys like you. You're going to want to do that. He said, it's not going to happen. He said, you come when I call. And I said, okay. Because <laughs> so, you knew how good the grapes were already. I knew it yeah. already. So we shook hands, and I went to back to my old car and called in the back seat and woke up about three and a half hours later with a, hang- with a screaming hangover and said, oh, what happened? Oh, yeah. I'll never hear from that guy again, you know. But it was a great, great lunch, you know. So went off. Brush rolls around. It's Frank, and he says the grapes are ready. I said, "Really?" I said, "When do you want me there?" He says, "Tomorrow morning." (laughs) I said, "Oh, great! What time? Three. I said, three. You can't see at three. He says, that's the point. Nobody will see. If my brother sees you, you give him too much satisfaction. <laughs> if the other guy gets grapes here, sees you, it'll just piss him off. And unless you want to take all my you know, French columbard as well, you'll show up at three. And so I showed up at three, and we loaded the truck. He had me out of there in like 40 minutes. It was like unbelievable. I've heard so stealth, many stories like that. grape purchase. Well, so many stories. <laughs> not, not from that regard, not from a winemaker perspective, but from a grower perspective, because there was such a control of who was buying which grapes. Mm -hmm. So when the growers would actually decide they wanted to produce their own wines, um, they couldn't produce them anywhere in town without certain people noticing who they were selling their grapes to. So you would see them like gain alliances over in the Napa Valley and they would go up over the Oakville grade (laughs) all the way over at the wee hours in the morning because they couldn't allow the opportunity for one of their contract, one of their clients to see them Who bringing those grapes them. Yeah. outside of yet, yet yeah their area. So well, in, a, in an amusing postscript to this, uh, Morgan and I, uh, David Gates says to me, he says Nervo Vineyard's available. Ridge is not using it anymore. I know you've always wanted to use that vineyard. You, maybe you should look at it. I said, well, I really can't use it at this point, but Morgan probably can. So we'll go up and meet Joe Mangali. And Joe Mangali is a guy who had farms. Um, uh, Nervo at the time. And Joe's, Joe and I have met each other before, but we, we never really had a conversation. And he says to me, he says, oh, yeah, he says, uh, you got uh, you got grapes from uh, Teldeski's in the early 80s, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. And he says, he says, he made you pick them in the middle of the night, didn't he? <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, how'd you know that? He said, yeah, he thought it was a big secret, but everybody in town knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so funny. That's a pretty yeah. funny story. That's and a then, great story. And then you mentioned Morgan. So Morgan is your son. Morgan is my son. Uh, Morgan is my uh, first son. I've got a second son, and I've also got a lovely daughter. Um, and uh, they all somehow ran away to New York uh, to get away from their father, I presume. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but uh, Morgan came back. My uh, youngest son's uh, still in New York, and my daughter is still in New York. Um, that's the way it happens. I mean, you yeah. grow up in these small communities and you just want to get away to the big city. So they want a I sense of what it's like to yeah, be they, in the big city. When yeah. they when they were teenagers, they used to call Sonoma Slocoma. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah, but Morgan came back because um, he decided that he didn't want to be a history professor. I mean, he, he went out and got a really good education and was really good at what he did. He went to Vassar and went to Columbia and... Uh, and then came back and had to kind of go through the school of hard knocks to become a winemaker. So he came back and I said, well, you're not really qualified to be a winemaker. And he said, what do I do? I said, well, let's see if you survive a crush with me. 
So I turned him <laughs> over to my seller crew uh, and said, he's yours. Yeah, don't do him any favors because he's my son. Just teach him everything you can. Uh, and so he survived that, and then he went to Australia and worked in Australia, and then he you know, came back from Australia and went to work in France. He worked at Lynchbage and some other you know, places in France. And then he came back and said, well, can I, can I start a winery now? And just to show me up, he started a 400-case winery. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's done, and he's done pretty well with it. I would say he's done very well. Yes. He is uh, he is one of the really success stories for small wineries okay. in California. He's uh, super smart. He's but he's also really really good with the people he hires and who and they love working for him yeah. and uh, yeah, no he's uh, done very well. He's also a really good winemaker. He got his uh, MW or Master of Wine, mm-hmm. uh which is perhaps the hardest degree in wine, in the wine world to get. Uh, and it means you really have to know your stuff, and yeah. he does know his stuff. That's yeah, fantastic. and for our listeners <coughs> who may be going, wait, where uh, Morgan Dwayne Peterson is the founder and winemaker at Bedrock Wines. So, yeah, and if you want to find his website, it's bedrockwineco.com. Right. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of fascinating information on his website as well in terms of. Um, Growing and farming Zinfandel and the other wines that mm-hmm. he makes because he sources from all over as well. And we uh, we heard a lot of fascinating stories uh, when we were at Zap um, from Jake Neustadt, mm-hmm. uh, his uh, viticulturist and vineyard manager of of what's going on and learning all of the the vineyards from Morgan as well. So um, got a lot of fascinating information that way. Yeah. I wanted to say, you know, I've been going back and forth to the once in future mm-hmm. 2018 Teldeshi. And this one, again, is so different from the others. And this is just so fascinating how time uh, and different growing conditions uh, will affect the exact same vines mm-hmm. that are expressed in the other ones. Uh, I initially got uh, a lot more um, blue notes Mm-hmm. up front with this wine, this 2018, um, and a lot of cassis mm-hmm. to me in this. Uh, and yet it's got a lot of blackberry notes as well. And things just keep popping up and I go, wait, what's that? What's that? It's it's really a fascinating wine. Yeah, that's that was sort of my observation as well with the black, the black fruits to the red fruits to cherry. Like it's so fun with all three of these wines because they're mm-hmm. so different, but then from the same vineyard. Well, the age makes a lot of difference. Yeah, uh, this wine, this wine is screaming youth. I yes, mean, like it's got a lot of the baby fat on it. It is uh, not really integrated yet, although you can see that the integration is going to come. Uh, you can see how age, like uh, mellows wine, like it mellows us, uh, and it's uh, the age tends to make it more kind of resilient and you know rounder and fuller. This wine still has got all those kind of look elbows and mm-hmm. and, and edges. Uh, and and as you say, it's got a whole spectrum of flavors that keep peeling off, aromatics that keep peeling right. off from the fruit. So one of the questions that I got recently from a friend was we were talking about the differences between Zinfandel coming from a warm climate vineyard versus a cool climate vineyard and the distinct differences that come across um, in the glass from those. And I was trying to remember whether or not I was getting them backwards in my head in terms of getting more 
blue fruit notes from a cool climate vineyard and more red sherry, cranberry, pomegranate from a warm climate Zinfandel vineyard. And I'm not sure if I got those backwards or not. And I would just want, I, I was curious in just in general for you to comment on the differences and observations you've mm -hmm. made between the different types of climates and then the uh, and the final wine in the glass that it produces? Well, generally the coolest climate that we think about uh, when we're making Zinfandel is Russian River. Yeah. And it has all those blue fruit notes. It has, you know, that uh, almost boysenberry-like character mm -hmm. uh, that comes out of that area for Zinfandel. And the acids stay higher. Uh, so the wines tend to be brighter, uh, even though they are in the dark, darker fruit zone. Uh, if you move to Dry Creek, which is not far from Russian River, yeah, uh, the, the climate changes fairly substantially, and it gets much warmer during the day. Um, but it doesn't get what you'd call hot. It doesn't get to be like Lodi, and it doesn't warm up really fast. It still has cool mornings. Um, and there's a lot more of the red cherry that uh, creeps in, even though there's still some dark fruit, but you never get that kind of boysenberry uh, kind of like dark, dark, you know, but bright fruit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the pHs tend to be uh, a little bit higher, so the ones tend to be a little rounder and a little, you know, little fuller. Um, and then if you go to someplace like Lodi, where you have, of course, sandy soils, you have different soils in these places as well, which affect the way the grapes grow. But in general, it warms up in Lodi faster uh, than it does anyplace else. So the days are warmer, longer, and some of the temperatures can be quite warm, although it has the treasure of being of getting cool winds during the evening, which cools it off on most nights. But those wines tend to be higher in pH. Uh, they tend to be um, softer because the skins are affected in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, and they tend to have some of what I call the over, slightly overripe fruit character because they tend to be slightly more raisins on a cluster when they pick. Uh, I wouldn't call it, frankly, raisins, but there's a real fruit ripeness that's associated with it. And, and because it doesn't hang as long, sometimes that fruit is in a slightly redder zone, so you get this kind of combination of red uh, with black fruit. But I suppose the, the classic red fruit Zinfandel comes from Amador County, which is granitic soils, uh, but it's also got elevation, so it gets much more solar radiation. Uh, and those wines have a very distinctive uh, high-tone red fruit quality about them. Uh, they have what I call the cherry cola character, you mm -hmm. know, like, you know. Uh, Bing cherry, you know, well, cherries really with bright this, red cola. Yeah, you know, with, a cola with a cola character in behind it. It's yeah. like all cola berries slipped in there somewhere. Um, and so those are very uh, interesting. Um, the climate is down in Paso is... Uh, fairly hot during the day, gets fairly cool at night. Um, and But there's, a, there's a, a distinct red fruit character about that, I think in part because it's probably warmer than either you know, mm -hmm. Dry Creek or, uh, or Russian River. Uh, but it also has a distinct earthiness about it. Uh, I know, don't know exactly how to describe it. Earthiness is kind of a, there's kind of a forest floor in, in um, in Paso wines that you don't get out of anywhere else. And whether it's the soils, there is limestone down there in some of these vineyards. So like the Uberoff vineyard has like got a lot of limestone in it. Mm -hmm. um, so different regions, 
give you entirely different flavors than Zinfandel, as I was mentioning earlier, is really the chameleon. And mm-hmm. it really responds to those uh, shifts, not just whether it's cooler or warmer, but when the heat comes, how much of it is there in a particular day, how cold does it get at night, and really what's the soil type. The, di- the yeah. diurnal shift, yeah, yeah um, day to night, yeah, can make a big difference. So many factors, and I always am perplexed with the winemakers and how they have all of these different variables working with them just from a growing perspective. And then when you come to winemaking, that's a whole other ball game so it's fantastic that you've packed so many years of experience into this once in future well, um, project yeah. of yours <laughs> <laughs> well it is fun and uh you know as all, all winemakers um after their first few years tend to get humbler and humbler as life goes on because you realize that there's darn little that you can control yeah. and that uh, when you're a winemaker you just deal with what you have and you do the best you can with it and experience teaches you, you know, what's possible and what's not possible. Um, and, and, of course, the other part of that is drinking a lot of other people's wines and tasting as much as you can, trying to understand as much as you can. So it's really kind of lifelong learning, if you will. Which makes it fun and keeps it fresh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, one of the things that crossed my mind when you were mentioning all of these different changes in the different styles depending upon more warm climate, more cool climate, or bigger diurnal shift. There are a lot of variables involved, but another place that folks can learn about all this besides Zinfandel.org or onceinfuture.com for your specific Zinfandel wine um, is also going to learn about these uh, from the Heritage Vineyard Society. Ah, uh, yes. Historic um, Vineyard Society. Historic, thank you. Okay. Historic Vineyard, and then I think Heritage is being part of that, but it is Historic Vineyard Society um, where you can learn a lot about the vineyards where Zinfandels and other varieties came from around California specifically. Um, and what came to mind was when we were doing the tasting, this is a few shows back, um, from Zinfandels and other grapes that came uh, from historic vineyards up and down the country was this, the, um, I think it was Carol Sheridan's um, Cucamonga mm, Zinfandel. Yes. Okay, so this, as I understand it, that vineyard is sandwiched between a whole bunch of freeway exchanges in L.A. Cucamonga. Yeah, no, it's right off the airport. Yeah. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it was, but at that at one point, that area was a very, very important grape growing uh, region. In fact. Um, the early California grape growing was primarily done around San Gabriel and in the Cucamonga Valley. Uh, Los Angeles had a huge winemaking uh, population. Uh, there were Germans down there uh, in Anaheim that made uh, grapes. Uh, really, the combination of phylloxera and something called Anaheim disease, which was probably Pyrrhus's disease, we don't really know, um, kind of wiped it out and made it really hard, but the business lasted for quite a long time. I mean, you know, you know, you know there's a there's a, still a Vine Street down there, and Vine Street had all the wineries along yeah, it. Yeah, and, uh, and then the inner cities of L.A. today that you know, those were all the um, Dutch dairies, so it was all open lands and dairies for miles. So you had your cheese and you yeah. had your wine, and <laughs> who, could, who could even imagine the inner cities in downtown Los Angeles with... Um, just a plethora of, uh, of dairies and vineyards, but it, it did exist. It did exist. In fact, one of the interesting uh, things is that probably the first planter of non-mission uh, grapes 
was a guy who came from France, and he planted um, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. And his name, uh, if you think of him as being the founder of the California wine business, his name was Louis Vignes, Louis Vines. What could be a better name for a founder of a wine business than Louis Vines? Wow. Uh, yeah, and so he, he ultimately uh, was kind of the founder of what became Colin Froling. Uh, and Colin Froling ultimately moved up here, so they mm-hmm. had a big operation in Glen Ellen. In fact, if you go to Glen Ellen Park, you can still see the winery that they built um, that is now a shell of its former self. It burned down when Jack London's um, uh, nephews actually owned it. Uh, uh, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so Milo Shepard and, uh, and his brother, you know, owned it, but it... Uh, Apparently, Milo's brother was sleeping in it when it caught fire, oh, uh, and Milo came and saved him oh, as, goodness. The, as the whole winery burned down. But it was a big redwood winery with a stone foundation with all the, uh. the old accouterments of like an old winery. You know, like it would have been, unfortunately, it would have been a historical treasure if it had been around, kept wow. around. Well, we certainly have our history around here with uh, fire. Stone, red, red vineyards, wood, redwood tanks, redwood, redwood tanks. tanks. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing, of course, with redwood tanks that came to mind is Sebastiani has mm. um, quite a few of them. And I, I know there as does Buena Vista. My neighborhood has quite a lot of redwood Cast. trees. So, if we ever need to cut some oh. down, <laughs> no, yeah, they're, I, they're I treasures. Love, yes, they are treasures. So, if we can't do anything about them now, they're they're up and they're fantastic, yeah. but they're huge and yeah. massive. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, and they're taking up the driveways. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's and they're, they're challenging <laughs> since their root systems are, are relatively shallow, shallow. They go out, but right on the surface. You so. just have to think of it as nature being artful. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so now I have to mention, because I keep going back and revisiting all three of these different wines right now. The 2012 Teldesky from, um, from Ravenswood um, has integrated with its exposure much more (laughs) it has it's not nearly as um bright and when i say bright i mean like just acid driven i think when we first opened Mm it yeah it was a little disjointed when we first opened it and it's like the the aromatics have pulled together it's still a little bit short on the palate compared to the 28 yeah 2008 yeah uh but it's uh but it's but it's lovely i mean you know i would be delighted to drink it, and I th- and I think uh, a lot of winemakers, in general, would favor in Sonoma County, particularly 2008 as a growing year over 2012. Yeah, um, as a much trickier year mm. and and kind of out of sync with everything else. Mm. So one thing I know that you have been looking with, at, particularly with um, Zinfandel advoc- advocates and producers. Oh, I've had too much Zinfandel. <laughs> no, is has been um, kind of this push. Uh, we're we're seeing this Sturm und Drang going on right now because overall the industry is kind of going. Wait, the demand has slowed down, uh, and m- maybe we should be pulling out vines. And no, sure, nobody wants to pull out any Zinfandel vines, uh, but we need to get more people interested in drinking mm-hmm. Zinfandel. Uh, and particularly, uh, we'd like them to explore that on not that they can drink online, but they can purchase online and they can mm-hmm. learn a lot more online and get there. What do you want to tell our listeners about 
bringing more Zinfandel into their dinner habits, their standalone drinking habits, uh, and and giving this grape a chance. Well, of course, do it. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing. Uh, but I think the other thing that uh, you could do that would make a lot of difference is when you go to a restaurant, um, don't order a Cabernet, don't order a Pinot Noir, don't order a Chardonnay. Uh, I mean, those wines are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of them. Uh, well, there's something <laughs> wrong with some of them, but like, yeah, let's not be too sweeping here. Right. Uh, but Come on, Joel. We work, we work in Napa. <laughs> That's okay. I, I work in Napa, yeah. Cabernet capital of the world, yeah, so well, there are yeah. some fantastic Cabernets. It should be the Petit Sirah, the capital of the world. Um, it's still there. It's still there. It's there. still there. Some of it's still there. Um, small amounts. But... Uh, it turns out that sommeliers are a little dubious because people don't gravitate to the Zinfandels on the list. So gravitate to the Zinfandel on the list. Uh, drink, drink a bottle of Zinfandel with your meals because it's as good and as satisfying and as regionally based as any of the other ones on that list. Uh, in fact, sometimes even more satisfying. So that would be a good start. And uh, then, of course, there are lots of little producers of Zinfandel that are making great wine. So, you know, not just myself and Bedrock, but people like Carlisle and Ridge and others are doing, you know, really superb jobs. Fields family out in Lodi, um, you know, they're, um, there's, there's, they're just, you know, Terre Rouge in Amador County. They're all really special wines uh, that have great character. Right. Yep. They, yep. Were, Limerick, they were Limerick, uh, Lim- Lim- Limerick yeah. Lane. Uh, okay. Another perfect. Per- Perfect. Right. And we also spoke about primitivos. So for listeners out there who want to expand their palate, are there any fantastic primitivos that you recommend or any uh, any locations to find primitivos? I know I personally like I rely on my small wine shops <laughs> yeah. uh, for those mm-hmm. imports because yeah. it's always so hard and it's always a gamble with every bottle. Well, and, you know, obviously Primitivo from uh, Apulia, uh, De Gioia, is, like, really quite good. And there are smaller producers there. uh, But it is also uh, a warmer region, uh, so the wines tend to be higher in alcohol. They frequently tend to have a slight sweetness to them. Uh, So if you love those kinds of wines, they're fantastic. But uh, I don't have any solid recommendations for Primitivo. I, uh, I've, I've worked with lots of Primitivo producers in various times, uh, uh, and the wines are exactly what they should be. They're very Primitivo-based, but they're not Zinfandel. I mean, in, in one of, I guess, it, I guess it sticks in my craw a little bit that the- <laughs> uh, That's okay. <laughs> that the, uh, the Europeans allow Primitivo producers to uh, label their wine Zinfandel. Oh. Uh, and so it turns out that Zinfandel from California had made big inroads into the Swedish market. And the Swedes and the Norwegians loved it. And somebody down in Italy decided that that was actually a cool thing. They rolled uh, out the coattails. So they, um, so they developed a, um, a bag-in-the-box. In Sweden, bags, bag-in-the-box tends to be high-class wine. They put mm-hmm. Chablis in the box from, uh, from mm-hmm. Burgundy. I mean, like, you know, so it's like you, you pay a lot for a bag-in-the-box. But the Swedes have cottages, and they t- carry wine into these cottages, and they don't like to carry bottles, so they want, but they want good wine. So, so somebody put together a, and so Zinfandel was in a, in a box, was a big deal. So suddenly this box shows up, and it's from Italy, and it's got a chuck wagon on the, on the, uh, on the front and of the box. Not something you'd really associate uh, with and, Italy. And a, and a cactus. Uh, <laughs> oh, jeez. And... 
and uh, a horse, and it oh says <laughs> it says Zinfandel emblazoned across the top, and down below, below the chuck wagon it says American in big letters. Wild and, Wild West. And just below American it says Oak in tiny little letters. Yeah, so it was like a real attempt to like um, create the illusion that these grapes that come from a place that is nothing like California uh, were were like Zinfandel. Uh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was no more like Zinfandel than Bordeaux is like California Cabernet or California Cabernet is like Bordeaux. Yeah. I mean, yeah, same grapes, but wow. Totally different. You know, totally ways. different, you know. Yeah. Different growing areas. Yeah. yeah so. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. So, yeah. That's... And, t- and Texas, not a place, or the Midwest, <laughs> or the West, not a, not a place you'd assimilate with, with wine growing. But... No, no. But that didn't, that didn't make any difference. It's, um, it's what uh, Europeans think of as, you know, as the new world. I mean, you know, cowboys yeah, exactly. and, cowboys know, and, yeah, and rustic hats. And, 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 yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my goodness. All the things you can learn. One last thing before we go, Joel. Somebody may be listening who's going, dang, I got to start making Zinfandel for myself. <laughs> We're going to assume that person is a youngster. What, what do you want to say to that person who's younger and thinking, I have got to make Zinfandel myself? Go for it. Uh, Zinfandel is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest grape to make wine out of. Um, there's a reason that home winemakers you know, chose Zinfandel and mixed blacks, you know, Carignan, mm-hmm. Petit Syrah, et cetera, as the wine that they like to make. Because if they picked it underripe, they got a rosé that tasted pretty darn good because Zinfandel tastes good when it's underripe. It's got a strawberry character. If they picked it perfectly ripe, they got a really nice, you know, claret-style wine that was, you know, pretty tasty. If they picked it all right, overripe, it sometimes got stuck, but that meant they ended up with a sport-style wine that was still pretty darn good. So it's hard to go wrong with Zinfandel. Um, you know, it's really a matter of whether you can tame it and make it do what you want it to do. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, so I would say go for it because you know you will almost always end up with something you like if you take the standard winemaking care uh, when you're making it. I mean, you know, follow a good winemaking book and uh, talk to a winemaker and um, and uh, get, go, go get yourself mentored up. Get yeah. yourself mentored up and you know get yourself a um, a decent small barrel if you can. You don't even have to do that though. You know, like you can you can put it in glass and that works too. Or you could do like Frank. Like garbage Frank. can, garbage <laughs> can, make it in the garbage cans. Actually, yeah. And any advice for um, securing grape contracts? Because I know it's different, and not oh, everyone man. in this day and age is going to be able to participate in a four-hour lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are um, actually outlets. There used to be one in Berkeley called Wine of the People. I don't think that it exists anymore, but they actually uh, will acquire lots of grapes and then split them up into smaller lots of grapes. Yeah, sometimes it's harder, but you can sometimes find wineries that are willing to do that for you. There are also small custom crush Mm -hmm. operations uh, that allow you to actually make wine within their facilities. So, yeah, it's not impossible. Different ways. And, uh, you know, know, most growers are pretty nice people. You know, if you go drive by a vineyard and you say, well, that looks interesting to me, I'll, I'll go find the grower and talk to him. Sometimes you, you know, strike it rich. An organization 
organization re- reaching out to organizations like the mm-hmm. the cultural uh the vineyard the heritage the the historic, historic vineyard, vineyard society, society is a great and well. for boy if you're the, that's your focus that's and, your and, organization yeah and regional organizations like yes. sonoma valley vintners and growers for instance yeah. or the dry creek association or the russian river wine growers mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they exactly. all, they're all very, uh, they're all run by very nice people and uh, they're all interested in you know, making you as savvy about wine as you can be, even if it means making your own. Yeah. yeah. One of the nice things about this industry is uh, most people seem to have an attitude of uh, rising tide floats all boats and helps everybody along because we're all part of working with Mother Nature and she's in charge mm, <laughs> in no the kidding. bottom run. No exactly. Kidding. Well, Joel Peterson, Godfather is Infidel. Uh, founder, proprietor, and winemaker at Once and Future Wines. Again, onceandfuturewines.com is your website for that. You want to get in on this great Zinfandel, that's the way to find out. Sign up for the list, and you'll get your little invitation for allocation, which is the way to go. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me on board here. Uh, It's it's been been great. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Great, and thank you for bringing in the wine. Misty, great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you. Been great enjoying our weird outdoors. I know, it's the middle of February, and it's like 75 degrees outside (laughs) right now, so go figure. At least we can enjoy it. Yes. So there you go. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Be sure to visit us out on uh, social channels out there on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and so forth. And you can find us at winewomen.net is where you can get more information there. Thanks for tuning in. We'll have another show next week.